Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Kit Fox, one of the editors here at Runner's World, and I'll be your host this week. As you heard in our last episode, David Willey has sadly left Runner's World, but he is very much here with us today. He's not gone yet, because this episode is the much-anticipated finale in his Moonshot series. David ran the Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan this past Saturday. If you've been following David's journey over the past several months, you know this race marked his attempt to finally qualify for the Boston Marathon. Runner's World contributing editor Cindy Kuzma accompanied David over the weekend to record it all. We didn't know this, but Cindy's actually got a pretty cool connection to the Bayshore Marathon herself. So we are super excited to bring you this, honestly, pretty dramatic conclusion to David's quest to BQ. Thanks for joining us. Up until now, the first voice you've heard in every segment of the Moonshot series has been David's. For this last report, I stepped in to handle the mic and let David focus on his race. I drove from Chicago with my husband Matt and arrived in Traverse City around 5 p.m. on Friday. I met up with David at a hotel near the start line. It's where his two Nike coaches, Joe Holder and Julia Lucas, were staying. Joe and Julia had also come to Michigan to be there for the race. In fact, Julia would be running with David the next day. They'd logged many training miles together, including his last 20-miler just a few weeks ago. Like many of you, I've been following David's moonshot quest from the beginning. But there's another reason being in Traverse City was so special to me. Ten years ago, in 2007, I ran the Bayshore Marathon, my seventh 26.2-mile race. That day, I took almost 20 minutes off my personal best time and qualified for Boston. I've always felt this place and this race are magic, and I was hoping David, as he guns for a sub-330 finish, would come to believe the same thing. As we gathered in Coach Joe's hotel room for a final strategy session, I asked David how he was feeling. I'm so excited. I, I have to tell you a minute ago when you said that it's May 26, my, my brain sort of like jumped a bit. Well, what? It's May 26th? Because that means tomorrow is May 27th. And that's just, you know, that date has been burned on my brain and, you know, in red letters on my calendar for months and months now. It's kind of crazy that it's actually here. I'm nervous. I haven't been nervous un until the past 48 hours or so. I've been very, very confident, in part because these guys have gotten me so ready to do this and I know that I'm ready it's a it's a certainty that I've honestly never had going into a race whenever I've gone into a marathon there's mostly been sort of a feeling of nervousness and dread and this is the first time I've ever gone into one with a feeling of complete and utter certainty that I'm ready I've never had that feeling before all that said the past 48 hours you know the butterflies have kicked in a little bit and of course, I've been tapering, and I do not like tapering <laughs> at all. And all of a sudden, you know, in the past five days, what's, what's the list that I've been complaining to you guys about? Sore throat, weird pain in my quad, uh, <laughs> too tired to walk across the street. <laughs> I run a three-mile shakeout run and, you know, feel like I haven't run in five years. Um, a little bit of grumpiness in, in there, too. Uh, 
but that's all to be expected with the taper. I'm, I guess I'm experienced enough to at least know that now. And these guys have been reminding me, no, that's just the taper. That's just the taper. No, you do not have a pulled quad. That's just the taper. Earlier that day, David and Julia met up with Lisa Taylor. She's the executive director of the Traverse City Track Club, which owns the race. She drove them a few miles out on the course, and David and Julia did a three-mile shakeout run back. They ended on the track at Traverse City Central High School. That's where the race finishes. When I ran this race, I loved the course. Stunning bay views on one side, shady trees on the other, that exciting stadium finish. Julia agrees. She told us how, now that she's seen it, she believes it's an even better race for David than she'd originally thought. So there are different sorts of athletes mentally. Some athletes uh, like and are good at just turning off their mind and uh, sort of giving into the motion of an animal body. David is really a mentally active athlete, and that can be good or that can be bad. It's bad if uh, in a moment of, of fatigue or pain, an athlete just lets their thoughts run away with them and they spiral out of control and really end up taking over a race or a training run. Uh, it's really good if they can corral those thoughts in order to to lift the athlete to performances that can seem superhuman. This course is wonderful for him, is ideal for him, because even though it's 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 pretty flat, uh, there's there's a personality to the course. There's some some interest he can think about uh, the way certain little rolling hills slingshot from one one turn to the next. He can think about the tangents. The scenery is beautiful. He's also a very emotional athlete, so he can let that uh, the the beauty of the lake sort of lift him. I asked Julia about their strategy for covering all twenty six point two miles. So we're keeping tactics pretty simple. In a shorter race, you're thinking about surges and and playing with playing with the pace for a marathon it's mostly dealing with the practical matter of uh, starting a little bit slower finishing a little bit faster so we'll start somewhere between 810 and 815 pace and then pick it up as the miles go Um, and then this is an out and back course so that sort of creates a strategy in itself you want to at halfway realize that's where you are and then run home keeping in mind whether he is in the first 10 miles second 10 miles or last 10k of the course 10 10 and 10 is a strategy he's used in the past and has worked for him the first 10 miles is about holding back the second 10 miles is about just keeping that rhythm locking in and the last 10k is is racing going time to let it go (laughs) exactly julia explains that marathon prs tend to happen with very slight negative splits in other words She wants David to run the second half of the race a bit faster than the first half. So the plan is to start a little slower than an eight-minute pace and then speed up. She'd have some help executing this plan. David would run with two other pacers besides Julia. His good friend Chris Heisler, who's the running concierge for the Westin Hotel chain, and Chris's brother, John. The two brothers are running 50 marathons in 50 states together. At Bayshore, they were checking the 25th state, Michigan, off the list. In fact, they'd signed up for this race before they even knew David would be running. When they heard about his plan, they offered to run stride for stride with him toward his BQ. Chris and John would also help Julia with another important task, carrying David's fuel. As Coach Joe explained, he and the other experts at Nike have performed a scientific analysis of several aspects of David's physiology. 
With that, they'd created a detailed nutritional strategy. So tomorrow, we know David sweats a lot. Tomorrow's going to be a little bit warmer than expected. We kind of pro uh, projected it at like 12 Celsius. It's going to be closer to like 15, 16. Um, so that's something we had to take into consideration. So basically the big ones, sugar, electrolyte, caffeine. Um, so he'll be taking in like a, I bet it's a total of about like 500 milliliters an hour. Um, maybe a few different bottles. We have the Morton mix. Then I'll have this, this electrolyte powder called Scratch um, in, a, in a salt lick if needed, if he fills it. And then he'll kind of have water to wash down his caffeine, uh, his caffeine gels. As Joe mentioned, the drink David is using is called Morton. That's M-A-U-R-T-E-N. It's an extra high-carb blend made in Sweden. You can't even buy it in the United States yet. Joe had to have it shipped over. When you mix the Morton powder with water, it forms a hydrogel. The company says this thicker substance makes the sugar infusion easier on the stomach. Next to me was a table filled with the mysterious-looking black packets of Morton, plus a pile of 10-ounce yellow plastic bottles. David's pacers would help carry these for him. It kind of looked like a lot, but spread out over six hands, it'd be manageable. While describing David's fueling plan, Joe shows me a crazy detailed spreadsheet. David, he hadn't even been allowed to peek at it before. There are multiple tabs, columns that are full of milliliters of fluids, grams of carbs, and caffeine. This spreadsheet is precise, down to the minute. And it's a lot more fuel than David used to take in. So every 15 minutes, you're going to be consuming some sort of drink, gel, product. It sounds like a lot, right? It yeah, does. yeah, that's certainly not something that I, I ever did in a in a marathon or even a half marathon. I would if I ran past the gel station and I felt like it, I'd ha I'll have a gel. I never like thought proactively about it and broke it down. Here's what I need to take in every mile or every hour, and that's just completely different um, this time around. It's one of the many many things that we're doing properly, you might say. <laughs> As Julia is quick to mention. Not everyone can stomach this many carbs and calories. David's lucky and that he's able to tolerate them without pain or cramps. He's also been testing and fine-tuning this strategy during training. So the perfect spreadsheet with the perfect amount of, of uh, calories and the perfect drink doesn't work if it hasn't been practiced. So a big part of the system is that we did almost exactly this in the 20-miler, in the 16-miler, in an 18-miler. We made little tweaks every time following his... Uh, his heart rate and little dips in, ener in energy, and then send it off to Joe and the team, and they and they come out with this incredibly detailed, very personalized sheet. So no one should just go into a marathon eating, you know, like bags of pasta that many calories. That's not gonna. <laughs> right, right. This isn't like a prescription for everyone. This right. is something specifically tailored to David and his physiology. Exactly. And then of course, the shoes. Right, so the shoes are a big part of this. Uh, Nike, uh, about six weeks ago, I guess, sent me a pair of the new Vaporfly 4% shoes. And it's a very close version of what the three athletes wore in the Breaking Two. David is referring to Nike's Breaking Two project, where Lalisa DeSisa, Eliud Kipchoge, and Zersene Tedese attempted to break the sub-two-hour marathon mark in Italy in early May. Kipchoge ran two hours and 25 seconds in the Nike Zoom Vaporfly Elite. I've run probably 20 miles, maybe after the shakeout today, 20, between 20 and 25 miles total over that time. You know, we eased into them. 
Um, and I have to say the shoe is pretty incredible. Uh, when you look at it, it does not look like a super fast shoe. It, look, it, it looks bulky. It's got a really thick midsole, um, but it's amazingly light. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons that it's so fast. And another reason is even though there's a lot of foam in this midsole, it's a, it's a, it's a new proprietary midsole that um, is also very light, but it's incredibly responsive. So often with a soft foam, which can feel good as far as cushioning goes, you lose a lot of your energy. It, it dissipates. This foam gives most of it right back to you. Um, and I think Nike found in their lab tests and in some independent tests too that it returns something like 85% of your energy, which is a pretty remarkable number. Um, and then lastly, it's got this carbon fiber plate, and that's inside the midsole. And what that does is essentially put your foot in a position where you're, you're pushing off the base of your toes, almost like a sprinter does. Um, gotcha. And it, and it just puts your foot in a position to run fast, basically. David still had to eat dinner. So I said goodnight, hoping he'd get some decent rest before we all met at 6 the next morning. And that was my plan, too. Spectating is also hard work. The next morning, the whole team gathered in the hotel lobby. That included David's coaches, Joe and Julia, his pacers, Chris and John, also me and my husband, Matt, and a photographer, Andy Wakeman. As we waited for David himself to arrive, I checked in with John on how he was feeling about his pacing duties. I feel good. I'm excited. This is this is a neat opportunity to to run a race where the focus is on someone else, and uh, running can be somewhat of a of a inward looking or selfish endeavor a lot of times. And this is a chance to to break out of that. It's always fun when you can when you can share a race with someone else. So it's it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and here's of David. <laughs> Good morning. What's up, John? How you feeling? How you doing, bud? Good. How are you? Feeling good. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> good to see you again. Good to see you as well. After everyone arrived, we walked a few blocks through parking lots and quiet streets. On the way, Chris and John described their plan for optimizing every aspect of David's race. Yeah, the, wind the wind's coming from the side. So you want to have one person blocking the wind from the side and the other two in front. So it's going to be an L at all times. Okay. And are you going to stay in the same positions? Um, I think ideally you have John, a six foot five guy in front. <laughs> right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, or if the wind is strong from the side, wherever the, the strongest is going to be, we're going to put John there. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I, we run together many times, so I, ideally two of us are together. At one point, John holds up his arm. He's wearing these two thick black wristbands, onto which he's pinned a detailed printout of the times they'll need to hit each mile in order to reach David's goal. It's a lot of numbers, three columns of them, and they stretch almost the whole length of his forearm. So I wanted to have this for the uh, quick reference split time to to keep track as we go. Uh, I don't want David to have to worry about what's on his watch or what's on the clock, and he is he's outsourced the the pacing at this point. So that's on us to make sure that we're we're hitting the splits, and this will make it a little bit easier for me, so I don't have to do a bunch of complicated math. Right, I know that the mental capacity for doing math decreases a little bit as the mileage increases. Absolutely. So if he was doing that, that takes away from what he needs to be focusing on, which is just running his race. So this will be a quick reference sheet I can give a look down and make sure how close we are on off pace. I got kind of like a 
the, the bare minimum that he needs for the 330 on there. I got a couple uh, seconds faster than that, a couple different ones to choose from. So we'll oh, multiple at. options. I oh, like yeah, that. It's all like the a different paces and, and for each mile marker. So we can check as we go. So we should be all set. Excellent. And then there it is, the start line. All right, the starting line is coming into view. The sun is coming over the trees. Uh, over the row of porta potties. It is a beautiful race morning. <laughs> there are a few runners around. People getting an early start. It's still about 6.25, so the race starts at 7.15. Still got some time. Julia leads David through the warm-up they've practiced. It's an easy jog, followed by drills that look kind of like what a soccer player might do. Some side shuffles, moves in which he pulls each knee to his chest, dynamic calf and hamstring stretches. David's mood is still calm. He makes a couple trips to the porta potty. In between, I ask him about one of the mental tools he'll use when things get tough. It came from Dr. Bob Swope, a sports psychologist at Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. He consulted along the way. So I did want to ask you too, David, uh, Dr. Swope told you about smiling, uh, and maybe you might not be able to smile full on at sometimes when you're running hard, smile with your eyes, little smiles. And I, I wondered if we could see your, your smiles, your twinkle this morning, so I know what to look for. All right, ready? I'm ready. <laughs> you get it? It looks pretty much exactly the same. I don't know how that's going to translate for audio. <laughs> on but the outside. On the outside, but you're smiling on the inside. <laughs> Widely. Widely. No, it actually helps. Mm -hmm. I clench my jaw. Mm -hmm. when I run and I notice myself doing it all the time and as much as anything that's a reminder to just relax. not clench my jaw and just relax. We arrived with plenty of time but now the clock's ticking. David's in line for the porta potty again. Meanwhile his brand new high-tech shoes they're still sitting on the ground in the parking lot. He did his warm-up in a different pair of trainers. With seven minutes to go he hasn't even begun putting them on. His coaches are visibly anxious. Unlike big city races, there are no official start corrals at the Bayshore Marathon. There are only about 2,000 marathoners total, so runners line themselves up next to signs that correspond to their planned pace. Coach Julia wants to make sure they start in the right position near other runners aiming for an eight-minute mile. That way, they won't waste energy weaving around those starting at a much slower pace. Got about Five minutes ago, David's uh, putting his shoes on, doing a little last-minute uh, lubing up of his toes there, getting his uh, feet ready for his socks and his awesome Nike shoes. How about, David, you just pop those on quick and we do the little, like, finagling on the start line just to make sure we get a spot? Finally, David stands up and prepares to head to the start line. Joe and I say our goodbyes. David, it is a magical course and a magical day. Have the great run. We'll see you out there. All right, thanks, Cindy. I'll Take look care. for you. All right. My guy. Love you, bro. Good luck. Go. Kill Here it. Go. Kill it. We got this. All right. I'm looking for you. All right. I'll be there, right, buddy. See you in a bit.
gun goes off. Cowbells clang, spectators hoot, runners take off. And David is still tying his shoes. In fact, he doesn't cross the starting line until about a minute after the race begins. Much as Julia feared, this means they're surrounded by runners aiming for closer to a 10 or 11 minute pace. Now, their plan was to take the first couple of miles relatively easy. But if David wants to be Q, they can't afford to run two or three minutes behind goal pace in mile one. So the pack of four, David and his three pacers, they have to zigzag around before locking into their groove. It's a bit of a rocky start, to be sure. Meanwhile, Joe and I also have to hustle. We rush back to the car with the photographer, Andy. My husband, Matt, drives us north toward mile seven to catch our first view from the sidelines. We arrive at mile seven with a few minutes to spare. It is just after eight o'clock, it is 8.01, and we just saw David pop up on the tracker as passing the five mile mark, uh, just about on pace. He crossed the start line at 7.16 a.m. He crossed the five mile at 7.56 a.m. in uh, 40 minutes and 15 seconds. So he's uh, doing a pretty good job of easing in and keeping on pace. So uh, he, he told us to surprise, he, or he told me to surprise him with what, what I was going to yell. So <laughs> as, a, as a coach, Joe, what, what, what do you think would get, and you know David, you've been working yeah. with him for months. What do you think would give him a right cue at this point in the race? Uh, I mean, for him, I, I mean, I think he just wants to know that like, you're here to, su- just here to support him. So whether that's like either like some even something as cheesy as like dig deep or stay relaxed or just or even just flout just flout just flout probably be good for him just to because he needs external cues to kind of kick him up internally. Okay, so just flow. Just flow. Just flow. Flow, baby, flow. Flow, baby, flow. <laughs> flow, baby, flow. All right, I think we can do that. <laughs> All right, it's eight ten and we are standing just in front of the seven mile mark, waiting for David to come through. Any minute now, should be another one to three minutes, I'm guessing. Is that them? I think that's them. Here they come, here they come. All right, we've got David and we've got John in the front. They see us. They see us? All right, here they come. Just flow, baby, just flow. Flow, baby, flow, David. Your plan is being executed perfectly. Uh, we're go. on pace. There we go. Go. Yeah, go, go. Let's go. 56.10 they're at right now. 56.10 they're at right now, and he is looking smooth. That was a big smile he gave us. There you go, D. They're cruising. He's in his purple shirt. How did you think he looked, Joe? Uh, I mean, he t- had enough energy to turn back and look at us. They said that hydration plan's going well. Um, he looked, I mean, he looked great. He wasn't sweating too much, which is nice because we know he's a over sweater. Um, so they said he came through at 56.10 and we're at mile seven. So they, they cut, they moved up a little bit. So they're about, you know, at eight, just right at an eight minute pace, just about at 801 and change. So they're right there. That's what we like. Hopefully a negative split it and uh, keep it moving. We jump in the car again to race the runners to the turnaround point. On this out and back course, we can see David right before and after he hits 13.1, the halfway mark. When we get there, we meet up with David's extended cheering squad. This includes his 12-year-old son, Tristan, and his younger son, Brody. It is 8.50 a.m. We're expecting David in about 10 minutes. So I'm here with Coach Joe and with David's family, too. How are you guys feeling here waiting for your dad, Tristan? Um... I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of 
happy for him because he was a little skeptical a few months ago if he could actually do this. So I think it feels good for him to really get out here and actually do it. What do you think it'll mean to him and to you uh, when he qualifies? Well, it'll be first for him. He'll finally be able to run Boston, so that'll be fun. And I think he's this is like experience for a lifetime for him because he's always wanted to do this. So that'll be fun. Yeah, I've gone on a bunch of his runs with him. Oh yeah, what's that been like? It's been fun. He, he's he always appreciates to have someone running with him. So to have the three people running along with him will really help him. I think it's a beautiful course. You can take so much from it. Like he takes the natural beauty of it and turns it into energy. It's really amazing. That is a pretty amazing process. That's for sure. Brody, did you want to say go dad or something? Yeah, go dad. <laughs> All right. And this is Brody. Brody. All right. And how old are you, Brody? Um, eight. Eight. <laughs> awesome. The whole gang is here cheering good David job, on. Good job. Way to go, runners! So we see him in there? All right. They're in a... They're coming through. They're in kind of a big pack right here. Yeah, 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 yeah! Come on, D! Woo! Go, David! Come on, buddy. All right. We're going to see how David's doing. Wow. They're coming through. They've got a whole pack of runners around. They're looking smooth. All right. All right. We just watched him pass by. He looked happy to me. David's wife, Kira, likes what she sees so far. When he gets tired, you can tell he, he, his upper body tenses up quite a bit, but he looked really relaxed and happy, and maybe that was just for our benefit, but, but he looked great. Yeah, I'm excited. He had that whole pack of runners around him. Do you think that was helpful to him? Maybe? It must give him so much energy, I would think. You know, I mean, running, I can't even imagine undertaking this by yourself and trying to do it on your own, but he's got this incredible support group. Um, but he looked really happy and relaxed, so I think I think he did too. Yeah, great. Thanks, Gara. Appreciate it. We head to the car and rush back south. Joe and I stake out a spot near mile 20 and a half. We can see the 21-mile marker in the distance. At the last timing mat, David was at 7.56 pace. I don't quite see them. Oh, there they are. There they are. Yeah, I do see them. Yeah. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Looks like the Pacers are kind of shading David. They're coming through right now. Chris is in front. John is on the right. David behind. Here we go. Here we go. How we doing? How we doing? Looking good, baby. Looking good, huh? Come on, you got set. That's it. Let's go, D. Come on, D. Looking good, David. You're looking good, bro. Let's go, Gully. Bring it home. Bring it home. Come on. He is pretty drenched. It's still looking pretty smooth. Maybe a little more tired than the last time we saw him. He's tired. He's tired. But, I mean, he looked pretty resilient and resolved, so I think he got it. Excellent. Well, let's try to get him at the finish. I could feel that the mood had shifted a bit. It was late in the race, and the temperature was rising. David certainly showed signs of fatigue that might be expected after running more than 20 miles at race pace. Still, Joe and I felt cautiously optimistic as we headed back to the car one last time. But then, something happens that changes everything. The photographer Andy had gone a little bit ahead of us to get a better shot. He came back to the car a couple minutes later and told us that right after we saw David and the Pacers and they were all running, looking pretty good, he saw David walking. 
Clearly, Andy said there was something wrong with one of his muscles, one of his joints. He, he couldn't quite tell what, but it wasn't good. So after that, Coach Joe hunches in the back seat and he pulls the bottom of his shirt over his face. He basically can't speak, and we drive to the finish line in near silence. When we arrive, Matt drops us off, and Joe, Andy, and I work our way past spectators and volunteers to our spot on the track. We stand immediately past the point where runners cross the line. Everyone around us is jubilant, but we're kind of numb, focused, anxious. It's a moment right out of Apollo 13, the mission and the movie, where the space crew in a damaged vessel experiences a complete communications blackout on reentry. For all of our spreadsheets and trackers and updates, we have literally no idea what's happened between the moment at which David was walking and right now. There are no timing mats past mile 21.2, no other spectators who we know could give us updates. All we can do is wait. So the clock says 3.28.30, so that's about a 3.27.30 for David. Still keeping my eyes peeled for them. All right, Coach Joe is standing up here near the finish line with me, and he stepped back here. I think he's, uh, he's, look, he's waiting. He's feeling anxious for David, I know. The clock says 3.29.04. Ryan Kennedy, Laura Morinette. So again, we want that clock to say 3.31 or less to, to get Andy him, Barrett, David, his Justin BQ. Justin Kleinfelter, Scott Zielinski. Amanda Lick. And the clock right now says 3.29.30. I haven't seen David come into the stadium yet. Wait, is that them? I feel like maybe I see them. 3.29.44, the clock says. Glenn Oates, Bill Pritchett, Kathleen Sanchez. Is this them? Is this them? Okay, the clock says 3.29.55. That means it's a 3.28.55. Here they come. Oh, my gosh. They're coming into the home stretch. I'm watching them. Oh, my gosh. David has crossed the line. What does it say on your watch, David? 329 on the dock. That was amazing. That was amazing. You have no body. This is like the heavens here. That was amazing. Amazing. I'm so proud of you. You did an amazing job. I'm so proud of you. Let's get out of the way for that. I'm so proud of you. Oh my god. Uh, that was the most dramatic. You did an amazing job. You did it. How are you David? Oh my god. That was so hard. <laughs> oh my god. The last. I had hamstring issues. I think I had to stop four times just to let the hamstring seize come out uh, so you know we lost a bunch of time and had to make it up those guys did an amazing job pacing and uh, you know it's just like we knew it was going to be those last 10k are so hard you're just trusting your training and 
relying on something that you don't even necessarily know is there. And it was super, super hard. But I am so psyched. Julia had told me before that, as a rule, she doesn't cross the finish line when pacing. That was her plan this time, too. But she's a highly accomplished distance runner and coach. She'd never run a full marathon. How did you feel as your first official marathon? You actually did cross the finish line, I didn't did mean, I got so just, I mean, in the last 100 meters, we were yelling that he had done it. We were so excited, and I crossed the finish line. I was like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> no, I felt fine. I'm sure that I'll be sore, but when you're, you, like, you just forget you forget you exist. You're running for this other person and so keyed into what they're feeling and mm -hmm. their breath and the sound of their feet. And we run so much together and fallen into step so many times. And I know he gets strength from that sort of uh, synchronizing of, uh, of bodies. Yeah, I forgot I existed, which is, which is a different kind of running and really special to sort of fall into. <laughs> That's what it feels like to help another runner. And people don't believe running is a team sport and there's never never a moment when I felt more linked to someone than when just matching strides with him. David refuels with some chocolate milk he describes as the best thing he's ever tasted. And some Moomer's ice cream, which is famous here in Traverse City. By now, the sun shines bright overhead, and David has another idea of how to cool off. Well, so we ran, good Lord, look how far, we, I don't, I don't know, I'm disoriented, but we ran a long way around Grand Traverse Bay and it's certainly in the final miles. I just wanted to jump into Grand Traverse Bay, so that's what, that's what we're going to do right now. All right, here we are, ready to jump in. It's not warm. There's not a single human who's in the water right now. That's, <laughs> that's a telling detail. There's some boats, there's some birds. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> but I'm going in. How long I stay in remains to be seen. All right. But it'll feel good. My quads are absolutely killing me, so I'm hoping this will help a little bit, reduce yeah. some inflammation. Natural ice bath, right? There you go. <laughs> go right. All right, here we go, in the water. You gotta just go, man. Julia had brought some towels from the hotel. There's a restroom at the park where the runners turn swimmers dry off and put on fresh clothes. From there, we headed straight to North Peak Brewery. We're there just a few minutes when Des Linden walks in. The Olympic marathoner is from Michigan, and they'd seen her on the course. Over beers, Julia, Chris, John, and Des rehash the race, and Des offers some surprising wisdom about the marathon. All I'm saying is I never, I never had that sort of just magical flow feeling, you know, where it's just That's like... Ah, I'll just ask you. That's a myth. Like you, really? You, sh you never had that? You shouldn't feel good. Like, it's hard. You know what I mean? Like, people are like, oh, like, it looks so easy for them. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Yeah. Doesn't mean it feels amazing. I think yeah. that's a myth. Like, people think it looks easy, so they think it is easy. Like, it should be hard from start to finish. It's a marathon. In a marathon. Yeah. I felt every mile. I think you're, I think you're supposed to. I agree. After a few hours of beers, burgers, and revelry, we leave the brewery and head back to our respective hotels to clean up and rest. We meet again later in the evening at the house David has rented with his family. It's about a half hour outside of town on a smaller but equally picturesque lake, the perfect setting for a final reflection on the day. Okay, so I am here at uh, David's Airbnb house. It is 8.06 p.m., 
And uh, David, you did it. You needed a three Bedtime. hours and 30 minutes to BQ, and you ran a 3.28.55. Now that it's five-plus hours later, is it finally sinking in? It, it, it kind of is finally sinking in, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's still a little bit surreal. I can't believe it's over, mainly. You know, it's been this thing that I've been working on for a long time, so hard. But uh, it was touch and go there at the end, right? Right, crew? <laughs> I mean, far better to sp be sitting here, you know, knowing that we actually did it rather than missing it. Coach Julia, I'm curious to know from you when you sort of knew that something was more than a little bit wrong and how you approached kind of coaching David through that on the run. So at the beginning of this cycle, and we've been working with David for, for five months, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whenever he was feeling anything in his body, I could see it. There would be the hitch in the stride and the sort of collapse that comes with, with a certain amount of fatigue. And it, it was just really easy to see pain or, or a, a buckle. And the cycle has gone so well. He's such a better athlete. He's so much better at... I mean, the time in the gym, the time out on the roads, all the drills, now there's not a collapse. His fatigue is kind of invisible running next to me. So I was going off more what he was saying as the, the, the markers of that something that it might not be going as well as, as his body felt next to me. He just felt good next to me. He felt his stride was even, his footsteps on the ground were, were metronomic, it, everything was going well. And then at halfway, he said that there was a pull on his hamstring. And at halfway in a marathon, you do not want anything to be wrong. And then to stop at mile 18 and yell at your hamstring, it's, it's not a good circumstance. <laughs> Nobody stops out of frustration and pain in a marathon at mile 18 and then finishes well. That, is, that does not happen. Like I knew that he had this that he had this ongoing problem and something that we had managed. I didn't realize that it was that bad because he wasn't giving those physical cues, which is what you want at the end of any race. Anyone who's running hard is suffering, and so he would he would stop when his hamstring would seize, and I would only know it was seizing in the step beforehand. But it was a major. Everyone's seen someone pull up with a lame hamstring, and it was a it was a hop and a skip to a stop. Like he needed to stop, and uh, then he would. He would have a moment of frustration, calm himself down, do a few knee lifts and hamstring stretches, try to coax it into looseness, and then hop right back on 7.30 pace. Uh, in, in, in any race, there will be a moment where you can, you can let the pace go or you can give in to frustration, and the athletes who perform well and perform well consistently aren't the ones who are eliminating distress from their races or eliminating pain or eliminating fatigue they're the ones who can who can ride the storms and at mile 23 in a marathon something's gonna hurt <laughs> like that's that's hard <laughs> uh and he managed through four different stops uh to take somewhere between 10 and 30 seconds every time to get himself back together work into it into the pace and then really hit those seven 750, 740, 730 miles. Um, and then over the course of that last six miles, he under he figured out how to work on this uh, on this very narrow line where he was running the pace he needed to run, but he wasn't running over his head. So in the last 
three and six miles of a marathon, you're trying to get as many backs as possible. You're trying to eat up ground. You want to leave everything on the on the course, and that wasn't something that he was capable of doing that that day. He needed to be this go into kind of cold heart assassin mode. <laughs> this is what I need to run. No more. No less. Uh, take it easy on the downhills, which were what were hardest on his hamstring. Uh, he found this well of strength in hills. He was passing so many people on the hills, and that wasn't tough on his hamstring. So just maintaining a strong mind, not letting his emotions run away with him, and relying on this stronger, healthier body that we've built over this past five months. And when would you say that you knew uh, you knew he had it? The last hundred meters. <laughs> when it's not, it's not a, because see, when you have, when you're dealing with something like that, we're not. It's it's not common to be to be training with a hamstring that is seizing up aggressively on you. Uh, if we were in mile five of a marathon, we would stop. Like it's a lot to train through, and you don't do that many times in your life. You don't. You're not beating beating your head against a wall. Uh, shouldn't beat your head against a lot of people certainly do uh and if if you're dealing with that you are in a partnership with your body your your body is carrying you to the line and if it decides to absolutely shut you down there comes a point when there's nothing you can do and then you're walking the rest of the way uh so i i i did not exhale until the last hundred meters amazing so Chris and John, you guys are here too, and I wanted to talk with you a little bit about your feelings those those last few miles. Um, what what did you think as pacers, and what was your reaction to what David was going through? I think what stands out the most in the last four miles, Julia started saying, "This is happening," and that line, even you know, we were up front to sort of trying to give them the two of them their own space because she just resonated with David. Once she said, "This is happening," I think at first it was just a, like a a statement and then in a mile became a command like the three of us were like this is happening like we are telling you this is happening and at the end I think for like that last half mile it became declaration all four of us had that moment of declaration but seeing him have it that was just beauty yeah I, I mean what what I what I experienced at mile 22 from the beginning, it was a, a mental race. His hamstring continued to hurt for the rest of the way. And David said it, it wasn't easy. I was in distress. And so he was saying, you know, as if that was a fault of the race. And, and our point was, that's what makes it that much more of an impressive race. Because you were in distress and you still did the last four miles the way we did. We, got, we had four miles to go and we were not on pace. We were 17 seconds over. And at that point, it was... It was a decision. The distress was not going to stop at that point. But at that point, it was it was a mental race. Your, your body's what it's going to be, and now you can either succumb to that or you can override it and, and say, I'm not going to listen to you. And, and in a very real way, hamstring, I hear you. We can talk about this 20 minutes from now when we're done. But for the time being, you're going to have to... Sh and that's what it was. And that, so that honestly that's was... To, to have a, a front row seat to watch that. I, I don't care if you're setting the world record or or getting your, you know, three thir whatever. Like, to, to watch that process of your body wants to give up and I'm going to decide 
I'm not going to give up. And that's what it was. He made that decision with at the 20 at mile at the 22 mile marker. And we did. And the next two miles were the fastest two miles of the day. And that had nothing to do again, nothing to take. The, the body was what it was. That was not a, that was not a body thing. That was a David's mind thing that I feel like that was a special treat to see that firsthand, to know what was going on just behind us. And, and to see someone take that step and make that decision was a, was a real honor. It was a treat. David, you said something soon after the race that, that really struck me. It was that you had used every tool in your mental toolkit and the pain was still there. When you reflect back on that, I mean, tell me more about what that felt like and what you think it says about your mental game that the pain was still there. You used every tool in your toolkit and you still persevered. Yeah. Um, so back to Dr. Swope, he said something to me about the inevitability of discomfort at the end of a marathon, right? And, and understanding that that's just part of doing a marathon. And in past marathons, I, I didn't see it that way. Whenever it would get hard, I would see it as, oh God, here we go again, right? Groundhog Day. This is when the wheels come off. You know, the, all this stuff I did, all the different training, working with these coaches, here I am again. And I just worked really hard on changing that point of view and understanding that, and it sounds so obvious, but it didn't, it doesn't feel obvious. At least it didn't to me at first, understanding that that pain and that agony is part of doing a marathon. And as Dr. Swope said, it's, it's an expected visitor may not be a welcome visitor, but it is an expected visitor. The question is, how are you going to respond? Right. And, and it's pretty simple. You can go negative or you can essentially go positive. And so that's what I learned how to do working with these guys and with Dr. Swope. And I did use every, I tried every mantra, all my cues, everything. And, and this is what was a surprise. And that, you know, then we're down to like the last two miles and they weren't, they weren't solving it. You know, it was still absolutely brutal. And I swear to God, I can't even tell you what it was. I'm not even sure what I dug down and found other than, and it might've just been as simple as, you know, again, this sounds really cliche too, but just, just one more mile, just hold this pace right here. Listen to these footfalls, lock into Julia's footfalls, watch these guys back and just, just go a little more or catch that one runner ahead of us. Okay. You caught that runner, get, look at another one. And, you know, just hold on. (laughs) What's interesting about the way he said that is he's, I tried every mantra and it wasn't solving it. And and I would say they, they did solve, like solving it doesn't mean the pain goes away. That's the whole point is that the pain still stayed there. They, they solved it because the pain was still there and he still did the last two miles and what he needed to do to get home. The point was that you could, you got to the pain and, and it didn't stop you. You know, and he didn't notice, but the entire last four miles, we told, we said this after the race, there were people carnage along the right-hand side of the race course of people stopping, walking, slowing down. And he was oblivious to it because we, we motor right on past all that. So you may have said, Hey, it wasn't solving it, but in a way that they did, because we kept going, we didn't slow down. I guess that's right. I said this to you, I might've said this to you earlier. If I were out there alone, like I've run every other marathon of mine by myself, 
there is no doubt that I would have taken my foot off the gas just a little bit when my hamstrings were seizing and I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And that, and that little margin is everything. And I think that is what I was able to do is just, just don't let up. Make the, Chalene Flanagan puts it this way, I hope I have the ability to make the right choice. Um, and I hope I choose to go deeper into the pain and not to take your foot off the gas just a little. I mean, I'm not saying I would have stopped and walked. I'm just saying I would have backed off just a little bit to feel just a little less in agony. And in that choice was, was the BQ, the whole thing. There's no, there's no doubt if I wasn't with these guys that I would have done that in my mind. And I have to say, it was amazing. I didn't look at my watch once the whole race. I did not look at my watch once. I'm not exaggerating. And Julia knows how rare that is. When there were clocks out in the course at the timing mats, I looked away. I had no idea, not even at halfway, where, where we were relative to time. I mean, I knew these guys were gonna have us on pace. So when we hit that track, I truly didn't know if I was gonna make it. And it, oh, it wasn't until you guys were screaming, you did it. You, this is happening. This is happening. This is happening. And even still, I wasn't sure because I looked. And there are three clocks. And I'm like, what clock do I look at? And one of the clocks was the gun clock, and it said 3.30 and something else. Correct. 3.30 and change. So my very first reaction was, oh, my God. I'm going to miss this thing by like a few seconds. Had we started when the race started, you would have. But we didn't start on time because you were still tying your shoes. Although David made his official cutoff goal of under 3.30, he still doesn't know if he'll actually hit the pavement in Boston in 2018. To qualify for Boston, each runner has to run a qualifying standard based on age and gender. As we've said, for men age 50 to 54 on Boston race day, and David will be 50, that standard is 3 hours, 30 minutes. But just because you run under that time, that does not actually guarantee you a bib. That's because there are so many runners these days trying to get into Boston. To keep the field size manageable, the Boston Athletic Association allows the runners who beat their qualifying time by the largest margin to sign up first. Here's how it works. Registration for the 2018 race opens this year on Monday, September 11th. But on that day, only those who ran 20 minutes or more faster than their qualifying standard can sign up. If the race hasn't filled by Wednesday, September 13th, those who beat their standard by 10 minutes can register. On Friday, September 15th, registration opens for those who ran five minutes faster than their qualifying mark. In fact, it's not until the next week, on Monday, September 18th, that anyone who meets their qualifying standard can register. And David will fall into this group. Even then, signing up isn't a first-come, first-served process. After registration closes completely on September 20th, the BAA will go through all the runners who applied and award the available spaces to the fastest runners relative to their qualifying times. For instance, last year, runners had to run two minutes and nine seconds faster than their qualifying standard to gain entry to this year's Boston. So, a 50-year-old man needed a time of three hours, 27 minutes, and 51 seconds. If he ran three hours, 27 minutes, and 52 seconds, he did not get a bib. For the 2016 race, the cutoff time was two minutes and 28 seconds. The year before that, it was one minute, two seconds. What will the cutoff be this year? David and the rest of us won't know until the end of September, which of course is a particular kind of runner torture. We knew that though, because in, 
I knew these guys knew that 330, of course, was the goal. But to get a bib, we wanted to run in the neighborhood of 327 just to be safe. And I, again, because I was not paying any attention at all to pace, I didn't know if these guys were pacing for a 330 or pacing us for a 327. And I never asked because I didn't want to know. Chris, I think uh, your your idea of the theme that this is happening is is such a good one. And and now this this has happened. Right. This has happened. This and has happened. And uh, we're getting to the end of a very long day, and I can see David uh, wearing down. And I just wanted to know now that this has happened, and at least this phase of your athlete and coach relationship is, uh, is coming to a close, if there are any last words that David and Julia and Joe, you would, you would want to share about this experience. Okay, so David is leaving this journey a healthier athlete in everyday movements. I can see it when he walks across the room and that's in large part thanks to Joe's work with him. He's leaving this journey a, a smarter athlete, uh, just understands how to treat himself on an everyday basis, understands how to how to warm up appropriately, how to eat, but he knows how to take care of himself uh, to, to, to reach any goal that, that he wants. And so this is not, it's not the end of something, but rather uh, the, the, he, has, he has tools that he can take, take with him. Um, I mean, I'm not, there's so much we've said. I'm just proud of David. I mean, I've known, I first met him a couple years ago through a, a different Nike project and I wanted to help him just go without pain because I've had that issue as somebody that's played football and grew up running track and always had these weird issues of pain. So to have somebody that deals with pain is like, it's a spe I take a special inkling to that because it's like, no matter how good you look, it's really all about how good you feel. So I'm big on making people feel better. I'm just super proud of David and everything that's happened and, you know, and just seeing the change in, in his persona, both physically and mentally, it's been really special. But I'm always big about kind of what's next, like relishing this. You probably, you got 24 to 48 hours more. You got another few hours on the podcast and the, and the magazine come out, but now it's, what's next? Right. It's, it's what's next. Let's do it. Right. And from my part, it's pretty much just massive gratitude. Really, that's my dominant feeling right now at the moment. Um, you know, I've been running for about 30 years. I've been the editor-in-chief of Runner's World for 14 years. It's not like I didn't know anything about running, but I feel like I've gotten a crash PhD course in, in running and in performance and in my own running and in my own body. Uh, and, you know, these guys change not just my biomechanics, which we rebuilt pretty much from the ground up. They not only helped me achieve this goal, that was a reach for sure, but you know, they got rid of this pain that I had and they just totally changed uh, my running life for the next 30 years. And that's a massive, massive gift. And in some ways that's unexpectedly the more important takeaway from this whole thing than you know what the clock said when I crossed that finish line even though again that was where we started I wasn't expecting all this other stuff I knew these guys were good coaches and I thought it was going to be okay we're going to get you ready and then we're you know we're going to do this it turned out to be all these other things so uh yeah I mean I, I feel like even saying thank you is just insufficient I'm also wondering how I'm going to do anything ever again without these two training me. <laughs> 5K, mile, the next marathon, whatever it is. 
Um, I have a brand new appreciation for for coaches, especially really good coaches. I've never been coached like this. I know that I would not have found all this potential myself if I tried to do this alone. So hat tip for sure to all the coaches out there and a huge thanks to uh, Joe and Julie and everybody else on the team. Thank you, David, for letting me be a part of this today and for sharing your whole journey with all of us. It's been incredible to, to join you for the ride. That was Runner's World contributing editor Cindy Kuzma and David Willey at the Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan. If you missed any of the episodes in this series, we've got them listed for you on our show page at runnersworld.com audio. That's it for this week's show. We love when you guys rate and review us, so please keep that coming. And you can send comments to us by email at rwaudio at rodale.com. rwaudio at r-o-d-a-l-e dot com. I'm Kip Fox, one of the editors here at Runner's World. It's been really exciting to play a new role here at the podcast. I'll be back in the host chair occasionally, as will many of my colleagues here at the magazine. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Cindy Kuzma. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.